Good morning, Grace Fellowship. We are really glad uh, that you are here this morning. I was standing backstage uh, listening to Tim pray, and then the train went by. Didn't hear a thing that he said, so I, I'm assuming that he prayed well. Um, but anyway, I'm Pastor Tim. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are working our way through this book called 2 Corinthians, uh, which is a letter in the New Testament the, that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church uh, in Corinth. We are in week uh, number six. It's a rather personal letter. Uh, they knew each other well. He had spent a lot of time in this city, and so he had time uh, to get to know them well, which meant they, uh, as you get to know someone uh, and as trust is being built in that relationship, uh, you start talking about sensitive topics. And in this letter are several uh, sensitive topics. We've talked about suffering several times already. We talked about forgiveness, uh, how difficult that is. We talked about repentance and how challenging that can be. This morning we're talking about generosity. On the count of three, everyone say generosity. One, two, three. Generosity. You're going to be glad that you came this morning. So grab your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're looking at both chapters 8 and 9 this morning, so we're going to cover a lot of material. Uh, but giving uh, generosity has always been a sensitive topic, not only in the church, but it's also in the culture as well. Jesus said that money was his greatest competitor for your heart. As a Jesus follower, the strongest pull away from following Jesus will always be the possessions that we call our own. The last thing that many Jesus followers surrender to Jesus is authority over their money and possessions. And so Paul spends in this 13-chapter letter, spends two of those chapters talking about this very sensitive topic. Let me give you the context, and then we'll get into it. At this time in, in history, there was a severe famine going through the Middle East, uh, through, uh, through Israel, uh, the Judean, uh, Christ, uh, all of the Judeans uh, were, were literally starving because of the famine. And so Paul, uh, Corinth is a city in, in uh, Greece. Uh, it was a wealthy, they were not suffering from the famines. Corinth was a wealthy city. Uh, the churches in Macedonia were wealthy, and they were uh, called upon, or they were, you know, volunteering to help the famine relief uh, in Judea. They had promised to, to help the church, but they had not followed through with that, that promise, that commitment. And so Paul had to confront them with that. You've done that to people. People have done that to you. You know, you said you'd help, but you're not helping. You said you'd come, but you didn't show up. Uh, you promised, uh, but you haven't come through, right? I mean, we're, we're all in this kind of boat. And so Paul is calling them out uh, on you made, you made a commitment, but you're not following through on the commitment. So here's what he has to say. In chapter 8, we're going to start with, with verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He's referring to other churches who did follow through on their giving, but Corinth has not yet done that. Verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So they, they made a commitment a year ago. They haven't done it yet. So now finish doing what it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing of it. For if the readiness, verse 12, is there, it is acceptable according to what one has, a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, 
so that their abundance may supply your need. In other words, there may be a time where you need their help, that there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. We'll talk about that in a moment. Drop down to chapter 9, verse 6. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, he's saying you're not just meeting a physical need, you're meeting a spiritual need. You're expanding the kingdom of God through your generosity. By their approval, verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ, from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace grace of God upon you. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift now chapters eight and nine is the longest it is the most involved and explicit passage on giving and generosity in the bible it is the most used passage when it comes to teaching practical generosity in the church i've spoken from these two chapters many times over the 40 years of my ministry Uh, the topic has problems all over it and it's a two-sided coin when it comes to generosity both inside the church and outside the church When you're talking about this topic, on the individual side of the church, talking about believers and followers of Jesus, in all honesty, folks, a lot of us think that we're generous when we're in reality not that generous. We like to think of ourselves as generous people. But you go through the scriptures, the Old Testament set the standard of 10% uh, giving, generosity. 10% of your income should go back to the work of the kingdom of God. Jesus commended that standard in the New Testament. 10% of your income going back to the work of the kingdom of God. For decades uh, in in American culture, it's very clear that on average, on average, the the, the believer in Christ gives about 2% or less of their income to the kingdom of God. And so this is a problem that we need to address. We think we're generous when in many respects, uh, Jesus might consider us greedy. And that's, and that's a problem. And add to that, this, this issue of, of, of greed in our lives, that, this is a very difficult thing for us to recognize, especially in the culture uh, that we live in, in our standard of living that we're so accustomed to. We're not quite sure. We don't always recognize uh, greed and selfishness in our lives. We know when we're lying, right? You know when you're not telling the truth. You know when you're taking something that's not yours. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're sleeping with someone that's not your spouse. That's, that's, that's kind of obvious. But how, how do you know when you're keeping more for yourself than you should? Not as easy to determine. How do you know when too much is too much? 
not as easy to discern. That's why Jesus warned us against greed. That's why he, told, he warned us against selfishness because it's, so, it's just something that we, we can see it in others, but for some reason we can't recognize it in ourselves. This is a problem. That's the individual problems that we come uh, up against when we talk about generosity. Now, on the church side, uh, we've got some problems and challenges to address as well. As a pastor, um, I'm supposed to help Jesus followers become more and more generous. How do I, how do, I do that? Well, both inside the church and outside of the church, there are, there are several ways to motivate people. Uh, actually, there's three particular ways to motivate anybody to give to anything. There's an objective way, there's a subjective way, and then there's the biblical way. Let me talk about these three ways for a second. Objectively, I can say to you, you need to give. This is a worthy cause. You're a Jesus follower. You're an obedient follower. Uh, and I could list all kinds of verses that speak to giving. You just need to give. And I could go the obedience route. I could go the subjective route. And if that doesn't work on you, uh, then I could go the subjective route. I could appeal to your emotional sensitivities. Like, you know, organizations that show starving puppies in dirty kennels. How can you not? You know, you just feel bad if you don't give to that. You know, and so that's, that's some way to motivate your giving. We, you know, we kind of play on your guilt. We play on your shame. We shame you into that. And you've seen these strategies both inside and outside of the church. What's interesting in this passage, in these two chapters, the most comprehensive passage uh, on generous and generosity in the Bible, Paul, Paul uses neither of these things. He uses neither of these motivations. He's not selling anything, and he's not guilting anyone. In fact, in, in verse 8, where we started this passage, this reading, the very first thing Paul said, and I'll put it on the screen for you, he said, I'm, I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm not, I'm not commanding you. Paul begins his whole teaching about generosity with this idea that he's not going to command or guilt them into being generous. Why? Why, is, why doesn't he go that route? Well, think about this. When you, when you command anybody to do anything, or when you guilt them into doing anything, you've just taken away, you've just negated the possibility of them doing it for the right reason. Now they're doing it just because you told them to. Now they're doing it just because they want to feel better about themselves. Okay? So the question is, what is the right reason? What is the biblical motivation for generosity. Now, I believe in these two chapters, there are many reasons that Paul gives, but we'll look at three of them this morning. The first argument for generosity is, is love, is love. I will give to what's most important to me. Now, this is, this is true of all human beings. Uh, I will give to what I love. The reason why Paul doesn't command generosity uh, is because you can't command generosity. You cannot tell someone to be generous just like you can't command someone to love you think about this you can't command anybody to love you you're gonna love me well no <laughs> um, I might be nicer to you uh, to get you off my back uh, to keep you happy I might even submit to you and do what you want because you're scaring me so I just you know I just you know uh, but love comes from the heart right I mean, love is a free will choice. If I don't decide to love you from my heart, uh, it may be obedience or it may be guilt, but it is not love. You cannot command someone to love you and you cannot command someone to be generous. Generosity is a heart issue. Augustine or Augustine uh, once said, we all have loves and that's what motivates us to do anything. We do what we do because we do what we love. 
and we give to what we love. Whatever you love the most, you tend to be the most generous toward. I'll say it again. Whatever you love the most, you tend to be the most generous toward. For example, if you love physical attractiveness, you will spend money on cosmetics and a gym membership. If you love success, you will spend money and you will, sp you will spend it on education or on training or on networking, on anything that helps you climb that ladder of success. Marriage and family is a very good example of this. Spouses and parents and siblings and generosity is just kind of built in. It's automated in, in those relationships. People are not a project. They're a relationship. And so uh, think about this, friends. There, there, are things, uh, there are things that you have to spend money on and there are things that you get to spend money on, right? I mean, I think, I think of all the sacrifices. Rhonda and I have two children and now we have grandchildren and you think about all the, all the money that you have spent on those people. You know, uh, getting them through school, uh, all the toys and the braces and the vehicles and getting them married and settled in life. And friends, children are the most expensive things in your life. But I look at those lives and I think about the privilege I had to share in those lives. To think that God allowed me to be a dad in their lives. Now, I'm not saying it was all fun and games, but I am telling you it was better than paying my taxes. <laughs> right? I'd much rather give my money to those kids than on a speeding ticket. You understand that, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't give because you have to. You give because you want to. You find joy in giving to that because you can't imagine not giving to that. So at the root of generosity is not obedience, friends. It's not guilt or shame. It's not any of the motivations that, that, don't, that don't last. When Jesus is the love of your life, well, I'll say it again. You, whatever you love the most, you tend to be the most generous toward. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, begging us earnestly. Paul is using the, Mas the, the churches in Macedonia made the same commitment that the church in Corinth made, and they actually begged for the opportunity to make that commitment. They begged for the Now, why would anyone beg to give to anything? Why would anyone actively seek the opportunity to be generous other than the fact that the love of Jesus compelled them to do so? Not commanded out of obedience, not compelled out of guilt or shame, compelled merely by the love of Jesus in their lives. Friends, that's the first argument for generosity. It's love. Here's the second one, gratitude. I will give to what changes me. I will give to what changes me. Uh, you will find the word grace 14 times in this letter. Seven times you find it in these two chapters alone. It's all about grace. God, or Paul rather, calls giving an act of grace. He calls it a response to grace. He says that it is an indication that re you've received and understood grace, this unmerited favor, this undeserved kindness and forgiveness, the gospel of grace. Paul uses the gospel to motivate us. Friends, not just the generosity. Friends, the gospel is the motivation to do anything, 
to follow Jesus in any way. Why do we do that? It's because of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5 gives, gives us an example of that. In Ephesians 5, it tells us, uh, talks to the husbands, and he says, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Now, Paul could have said, okay, guys, you need to love your wives. Shape up. Start doing it. He could have commanded that. He could have said something like, you're a loser if you don't love your wife. What a louse you are. What a rat. You know, uh, just playing the guilt route. But he doesn't do either of those. What does he do? Look, look at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. Why? Because Jesus loved you, basically. Jesus loved you. You are the church. He gave himself up for you. Why should you love your spouse? Why would you love your spouse? Because Jesus loved you. He, got, he always comes back to the gospel. We love because Jesus loved us. We serve because Jesus served us. We forgive because Jesus forgave us. We give because Jesus first gave to us. The motivation of generosity has to be the gospel. The fact that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. He describes it in verse 9. If you look at that verse, notice the words rich, poor, and then rich. Rich, poor, rich. Jesus was rich. He had, he had the command of heaven. He had all authority. And he left all of that to enter into human existence. And he became poor. He became poor both physically to identify with our physical need. And he became poor spiritually to identify with our spiritual brokenness. The Gospels tell us that Jesus had no place to call home. He was constantly dependent on the kindness of others. And then at the end of his life, he hung on the cross and experienced the rejection of his father. He became spiritually, he gave up everything. Why did he give up everything, friends? Because you, so that you could have everything. As a believer, when you are found in Christ, you have everything that belongs to Christ. And so you have been made rich, as Paul says, in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Paul says, I'm not going to command you to do this. I'm not, not going to guilt anyone into being generous. Just think about the gospel. Friends, don't think that generosity is ever going to earn you points with a God who has already given you everything. Maybe I'll say that again. Don't think that generosity, you giving anything, is going to earn you points with a God who has already given you everything. You don't need to be manipulated in this. You just need to be reminded. You need to live in the gospel. You need to bask in the love of God for you. You need to sit at the foot of Jesus. You need to swim and soak and bathe in it. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has changed us. It has changed our thinking and our values and our hopes. It has reoriented our heart toward eternal things. I can't imagine not giving to what has changed my life, which leads to the third argument, a reoriented vision. I will give to what changes the world. Vision. Now, again, uh, most everyone, you don't have to be a Jesus follower. A lot of human beings want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They, they want to give themselves, uh, they want to give to something that changes the world for the better. And, of course, Jesus followers believe that it's the gospel that's the greatest life changer ever. And so I give out of love for Jesus. I will give out of gratitude for the gospel. I will give out of the mission God has for me to change the world. Paul says this in verse 12. Uh, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, 
In other words, it's not just meeting a physical need. It's not just feeding people, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It is building and expanding the kingdom. I am giving out of a mission that God is using me to fulfill. He makes this point that there are seasons of want and supply. You've been there. We call it feast or famine. There have been times in your life where you've had more than enough. There have been times in your life where you have struggled. And sometimes, uh, sometimes we have need, sometimes we have extra. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, right now, your brothers and sisters in Judea, they're in need. And they need your help. I'm not going to command you to help them. I'm not going to guilt you to, to, to help them. You just need to be reminded of the gospel that has come your way, to change, that changes your life, that has changed your life. And you just, need to, you just need to let the gospel motivate you uh, to do that. Uh, and who knows? And he says this. Who knows? There may be a time in your life, and there will be, when you will need the prayers and the support of your brothers and sisters around the world. Friends, that's, that's what family does, right? That's what family does. We rally around the particular family member who at that particular time needs our help. Paul says this earlier in chapter 8. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a, ma a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. He uses this word fairness twice in this verse, and it's important for us to understand what he's saying and what this word fair means. To be fair, he could use the word just, He's appealing to what's, what's just or what's right. Fairness uh, is doing what's right. Now think about this, friends. And this is, you know, when you hear the word fair, a lot of times um, fair does not mean even. Fair does not mean even. For example, you have three candy bars, I have one. In my mind, fair would be that you have two candy bars and I have two. So my mom takes one of your candy bars and gives it to me. Now, in your mind, you're thinking, that is not fair. But it's even. <laughs> so, you know, fairness does not mean even. The question is not what would be even, but what would be right? What would be just? Okay, so what is Paul saying here? Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that everyone should have the same amount of money. He's not talking about financial equality or evenness. And so here's, here's what we need to understand, friends. There is nothing wrong with being rich. And everyone in this room, if you are an American living in this culture, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. You are extremely rich. There's no one in this room. I don't care how poor you think you are. You compare yourselves to 90% of the rest of the world. We have far more than we need. But there's nothing wrong with that, friends. Americans are incredibly rich. You don't need to feel guilty about that. Uh, you, need, you don't need to be ashamed that you have more than the rest of the world. It's, it's, not, it's not about being even, friends. It's about being right and just. So it is not fair. It is not right. It is not just to allow that wealth that you call your own to blind you or to numb you to the needs of the world. That's Paul's point, and I'll put it on the screen, friends. It is not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to be selfish. 
Okay? It is not a sin to have more. It is a sin to ignore the needs of those who do not have enough. You are blessed to be a blessing. And when you refuse to bless, your selfishness flies in the face of a very generous God on your behalf. What is fair in this situation? What's fair or just? What's, what's the right thing to do? Well, again, I'll take the, ne- the negative uh, approach. What's not right, what is unjust, is that those who have more than they need would ignore those who have less than they need. Economic justice is threaded through the whole Bible. God's heart is always going out toward the poor and the disadvantaged. Not so that everything would be even, but so that their needs, so that their needs would be met. And so Paul uses a very familiar story to illustrate this. In verse 15, he says, as, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now notice the quotation marks in that verse. Paul is making a reference uh, to what these readers would be familiar with. In the Old Testament, we have the story of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness without sufficient food. They did not have enough. And so Paul, excuse me, so God sends them manna. He puts manna all over the ground and he instructs the Israelites that every morning as they come out of their tents, they are to gather up this manna enough for the day, but no more than enough for the day. If you gathered too much, in other words, if you were greedy, with the manna, the manna would rot. That's what food does, right? If you don't eat food, if you have more than enough food and you don't eat it, that food goes bad. Unused food goes to waste. It, it rots. Now, the fu- foundational principle in all of this is God's provision. God is teaching them to trust him. God said... I am going to take care of you. I'm going to send you manna enough for every day. Trust me. Uh, And so take what you need, but only what you need. Because if you take too much, it will stink up your house. And it will mess up your life. It will grow worms and maggots. And all of this stuff will start flying all over your tent. So don't, don't take more than you need. Now, friends, this is what... This is what money does to you. Too much of it rots your life. Think about this. What, what happens with a person who has too much free time on their hands? Parents with children, parents. <laughs> you have too much free time on your hands. Generally, usually what happens, we get bored, which leads us into doing things that we probably, you know, we start getting into trouble. Time starts to rot our lives. Friends, too much money creates the temptation to judge those who don't have as much as you. Too much money creates the temptation of being jealous of those who have more than you. Too much money creates this this temptation of wanting just more money. And so in verse 15, here's, here's the deal with the manna. The book of Exodus explained this. The people would go out in the morning and they would collect the manna. They were instructed to collect just enough for the day. But there were some who for whatever reason could not collect enough. Now, that they were elderly or they were sick or for whatever reason they, they went out or they couldn't go out at all. In other words, they could not collect enough. And so there, there were those who could collect more, 
but they didn't keep the more for themselves. They shared it with those who, who could not collect enough. Okay, so they had enough and they shared the extra with those who did not have enough. The issue wasn't that everyone needed to have the same amount. The issue was that everyone needed to have enough. Friends, everyone needs to have enough. And so if you have more than enough, and the Bible is clear on this, if you have more than enough and you see a brother with less than enough, you don't have to pray about it. You don't have to seek godly counsel about that. You don't have to read your Bible about it. God has already made this clear, friends. Those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have more than enough, we actively seek out those who do not have enough, and we share with those. In, the very, in chapter 9, Paul goes on. He says, verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There's a word, you know, we could again use the word fairness or justice, doing what is right toward your brother in need. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. As I said, it's not just meeting a physical need, but it's expanding the kingdom of God. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, this ministry, this generosity, they will glorify God. Jesus said, allow your good works. This is never about you. Allow your good works to bring glory to God who works through you because of your submission that comes from what? Your confession of the gospel. Your confession of the, the impact of generosity is always the proclamation of the gospel, of Jesus who was rich, became poor so that you could become rich. Friends, generosity shows that you believe in the gospel. It's always about the gospel, thanking God for the gospel, glorifying God for the gospel, and living out the confession of your, your confession of the gospel. Paul says, I'm not going to command you because if I command you, you just do it out of obedience. And then so when, the, the, when obedience wanes, I'm just going to have to command you again. I'm not going to guilt you because when the emotional shame wears off, I'm just going to have to do it again. What would, what would cause a genuine Jesus follower to be genuinely and consistently generous? Jesus. The gospel. Now, I can't, I, can't, I can't conclude this message without pointing out probably the most familiar verse in this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, would you read that verse with me? Here we go. God loves a cheerful giver. Read it again. God loves a cheerful giver. How many of you have er ever heard the name Marie Kondo? Marie Kondo, anybody? Some of you. Marie Kondo, um, she's, she's become the rage in uh, Netflix. She's written a book. Uh, she's all about uh, tidying up the clutter and eliminating the excess out of your life. Marie Kondo comes into a house, uh, a pack rat situation, and she pulls everything out of the closet, and she pulls everything out of the drawers, um, and she asks, she asks this question about every item that you possess. You, you know what the question is? Yeah, some of you know this. Uh, what, does this bring you joy? Those of us who have far too many clothes, those of us who have far too many possessions, she pulls all of this out and she's, every item, she asks the question, does this bring you joy? And if it doesn't bring you joy, why do you have it? Why aren't you, why aren't you giving this away? Why aren't you decluttering your life? Now, here's, here's the thing, friends. I, just, I was thinking about this this morning. I think maybe 
most of us, if not all of us, need to do this with our money. We need to Marie Kondo our money. We need to pull out everything that we do with our money. And we need to ask the question, does this bring me joy? Or does this just feed my selfishness? Is what I'm doing with my money bringing delight to the world around me, changing me and changing my world? Or is it just adding to the greed that I so have a hard time overcoming? Paul is telling us in this passage, be generous. Be generous. But more important than that, be generous for the right reason. Don't be generous because somebody told you to be. Don't be generous because you, you need to feel better about yourself. Be generous because Jesus loves you and he's forgiven you and he's prepared a place in heaven for you and he's going to come and get you. And so allow that, that generosity to cheer your heart because of the Jesus that has cheered you. Ushers, we are now ready for communion. I can't think of a better thing to, to end on than this verse that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel. And so, and we, we just thank you that you reminded us this morning that this is not about obedience. This is not about emotional joy. This is not about guilt or shame or even feeling better about ourselves. This is about you. This is about you and the love you have for us and the love we have for you. This is about you. And so we come into this time of communion being reminded of what you've done for us. And we pray that that sacrifice would so transform our hearts that we would be not just givers, but cheerful givers because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.